The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 311. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back in this program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And of course, subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast at Brian McClanahan. You'll find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, McClanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show while you're there by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. You can also get your Brian McClanahan book plates. If you got one of my books and you want my autograph, just order one of those book plates. I'll send out an autograph to you. You can stick it on the book. You can also go to mcclanahanacademy.com where it's always free to enroll. You get a free class when you do so, and you can purchase one of my great courses there. You can go to Learn True History, T-R-U-E, Learn True History, my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom, another great way to support the show. You can click on that on that uh, shop tab on my webpage at brianmcclanahan.com. Get your Brian McClanahan Show logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Great way to support the show. And, of course, if you like the show, rate it wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, share it around on social media, do all the things you can do to help increase listenership. Organic growth is the best growth, and that's what I want. That's what I want you to want. We want people thinking locally and acting locally, so uh, this is a, um, a fantastic way to do it by getting your friends or enemies or wherever you want to get to listen to the show, get them listening to the show. All right, let's talk about the topic of the day. It's actually a Think Locally, Act Locally episode because I'm going to focus on a piece by Ryan McMakin, which came out in February, on borders. So we're talking about coronavirus now and what states are doing, what they're not doing. And I've given an example, and somebody was pretty surprised when I said this, but it's still ongoing. Currently in Delaware, the Delaware State Police are turning around out-of-state license plates and telling them to go home. If you're in Delaware and you're not from Delaware, you need to go home. Now, some of these people, of course, have property in Delaware, and they're trying to come down to Delaware to check, supposedly check their property. But what they really want to do, most of these people are coming from New York, New Jersey. These are hot zone states. And so Delaware said, enough, get out. Now, of course, what's interesting about that is that Delaware, early on, uh, didn't close down, and a lot of people from these surrounding areas, Pennsylvania, Delaware, New Jersey, I'm sorry, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, Delaware, of course, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, came into Delaware, used the beaches, and uh, perhaps brought some of the coronavirus with them. So uh, these states that uh, have, uh, in many ways, closed off. Now, Social distancing, social restrictions, whatever the case may be, we can we could look at states like like uh, I think it was South Dakota didn't close off anything, and their death rate has been lower. I mean, nobody knows what's going on with this thing, but certainly when we're talking about COVID nineteen, we're in the age of the coronavirus, and what do we do about it? What do state governments do about it? What do we personally do about it? How do we handle these things? I think that when you're talking about borders. Can states, and I've made the case, 
Can states close off their borders? I have said yes 100 times over. The state can close off its borders. If it wants to, it should, right? This is not illegal for states to do these things. Now, you can say, well, but yeah, if I want to do commerce, I can walk. I'm I'm commerce. If I walk into that state and I'm doing commerce, well, you're violating my commerce. You're violating the commerce clause. No, because you're not a state. All that means is that the state of take your pick cannot put a tariff up against another state. But it doesn't mean that you can't close off the flow of personal traffic from other states and say you can't come in here. As I made the case with airports, states and localities control airports. If they wanted to shut down international travel, they could have said, "Um, guess what? If you're flying in from take your pick country, you can't land here. If you're flying in from take your pick state, you can't land here. I mean, the states control these things. Now, I know that, of course, there's the the issue of air traffic controllers and the fact that these are federal employees. So then there's that. So does the federal government control the skies? Um, I mean, there are a lot of, of, you know, interwoven problems with this. I understand all of that. But when you're looking at the federal relationship between the states, this is really the issue. So this piece by Ryan McMakin, which generated a lot of buzz, um, it's interesting. It's on the Mises Wire, why open borders between states in America might lead to disaster. So he's saying that open borders between states might lead to disaster. This is a pretty good piece. Um, and I think one that uh, that people should should read. So I'm going to read it. It's not long. I think that uh, he did a good job laying out some of the things that we need to think about with open borders between states because it's still an issue of open borders. Are open borders a good idea? And I think he also podcasted about this at one point. But are open borders themselves a good idea? He says, quote, open borders is a phrase usually heard in the context of international borders only, international italicized. We hear far less about the issue of open borders between member states within a confederation or union of states. Now, first and foremost, we have to understand something here. The word state. The word state. State is a a concrete word. By that, I mean it it wasn't just fabricated out of thin air with Thomas Jefferson. There's a reason that we had states in 1776. And I've said this before many times, but if you're just tuning into the podcast, you've never listened to it before, or maybe you haven't gone back and listened to the 309 previous episodes, or maybe you've never gotten one of my courses, a state has meaning. A state is a sovereign political entity. Jefferson could have chose any other phrase, but he chose state. In fact, he called Great Britain a state, just like he called Virginia, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, New York, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, Del- uh, sorry, uh, Maryland, Delaware, New Jersey, Rhode Island, Connecticut. Just like all of those were states. All of those were states just as the state of Great Britain. They weren't counties or shires or provinces. They weren't weren't subsidiaries of the central government, the Continental Congress. They were states. In fact, John Adams called the 
men who went to the Continental Congress, delegates, like they were representing their state and a international body. See, that term had meaning. So when we're talking about the United States, we're looking at 50 sovereign political entities. They have delegated certain powers to the center. And of course, by delegation, and I've said this before, if you delegate something, that means you have the authority to do it. The central authority doesn't have the authority to delegate to itself. Who's delegating? Well, the people of the states. The states, most importantly. And if I delegate something, that means I can take that power back whenever I want to. Right? So I use this analogy with my students. If I gave them the power to grade their own assignments, and then they came back and they were all 100%, and I looked at them and said, well, they're giving themselves grades, I can take that power back and I have the power to override that and say, no, I'm going to change these. Because I delegated the authority. I had the ultimate authority. I gave it to them for a time. If they abuse that, then I can take that power back, which is essentially what the Tenth Amendment is. It's what the Bill of Rights was intended to do. You can't abuse these things. If you do that, we have the Tenth Amendment that says we can take that power back. We have that power. We didn't give you the power, the authority to abuse power, right? So that state, that term state has meaning. We have to understand that in the Federal Republic of the United States. So he continues, after all, no one thinks twice of crossing the borders between member states within the United States of America. Increasingly, one is similarly unimpressed when crossing from one EU member state into another in Europe. Often unnoticed is the way that, that disappearing patrolled orders between, borders between states have paved the way for advocates of even greater consolidation of power in the hands of the central government. This is an interesting position. So he's saying, look, these these disappearing patrolled borders between states, doesn't matter if you're talking about the United States or in Europe, have paved the way for greater consolidation of power in the central authority. Well, I think this was nationally, uh, naturally happened. It is nationalism because essentially what starts to happen is you start to lose those distinctions between a Virginian and a Bay Stater, right? We, we, we lose that distinction between Cavalier and Puritan. You've got all this movement around. I mean, we're seeing it all the time in the South. The South is becoming less Southern in the United States, for example. Florida, certain parts of Florida might as well be New York. We're losing all of that distinctiveness because people come from other states and they think, well, I love South Carolina. The idea of it's warm weather, it's great, it's not my state. I don't have all the problems of my state in South Carolina, but yet they don't understand that their political culture comes with them. And when they go to South Carolina and they settle down in Charleston, they make it like the North, which is what they were looking to escape. But now they've made it just like where they're from. Instead of adopting and adapting to what was there and saying, you know, if we're in South Carolina, we're going to act like South Carolinians. No, no. They want to act like New Yorkers in South Carolina, or they want to act like New Yorkers in Florida, and they mess everything up. So they should just stay in New York. But of course, that's their territory. That's their country. They can go live wherever they want. You can't tell me where I can live. It's my country. From this, this, from shining sea to shining sea, 
It's mine. And if you say it's yours, well, it's not really yours. It's mine. This is what the nationalists think. How dare those people of California talk about leaving the union? That's ours. They can't leave the union. And I'm, by God, right here in Pennsylvania, I'm going to protect those people. I'm going to make sure those people of California can't leave this union because California is mine. I mean, think about how stupid that actually is. It's just stupid. Uh, what do we care? I'm not in California. If California wants to leave, sayonara, right? Don't come back, y'all. We'll just see you later. You're gone. But this is the stupidity of nationalism. Perhaps we should break these things up. He says, it's a process that has taken decades or even centuries in some cases, but it is real. This process of centralization often proceeds in four steps. One, so long as there are internal borders unregulated by a central government, each member state can control or not control the flow of migrants, goods, and services locally. Thus, if one state has legalized a dangerous substance or device, neighboring states have the legal prerogative to stop those substances and devices at the member state border. The degree to which, which each state does this, if at all, will vary. There is no need for a universal policy because each member state is responsible for regulating those persons or goods it claims must be controlled. Only the residents within the specific state are subject to these rules, while outsiders are free to ignore them. All right, so... This is where you get into the issue of, oh my gosh, you're going to start talking about regulating people? <laughs> well, I mean, that you can't do that because that's going to be uh, immoral. So he says, too. But some activists and lawmakers recognize there are benefits to open borders, so seeking greater ease in the movement of goods, capital, and workers, and in some cases seeking to transfer the cost of border enforcement to taxpayers outside its jurisdiction Member states lobby the central government to minimize or abolish state-level control of borders. Three, but does this not come without risks and externalities? Without union-wide and uniform laws, pro-regulation activists insist that bad actors and prohibited goods can too easily cross from less regulated areas to more regulated ones. For so a solution is proposed, a central government will assume the cost of border control, transferring border control activities to the new union-wide border encompassing all member states. Within this border, lawmakers seek union-wide uniform policies. Bad actors are declared to be criminals in all jurisdictions. And the dangerous substances and devices can now only legally enter by crossing international boundaries. The central government is now expected to provide enforcement to maintain this new status quo. What had once been the responsibility of the member states has been transferred to a newly empowered central government. The problem is one of increasing threats to self-determination. As Ludwig von Mises noted in liberalism, political self-determination for individuals is often best secured through a decentralized political structure where local laws are created and controlled by the local population. By removing local control of borders, self-determination is lessened. Now here's entry. Of course, McMakin writing at Mises is going to look to Mises, this is a libertarian side, look to Mises and say, well, here is the example. What Mises was simply just reaffirming was the thing, some of the things that Jeffersonians had said long before this, 
what the decentralists in the United States had said long before this, we need to control our local. It's the local over the national. There is no national government in the United States. We don't have an American nation. It does not exist. This process is now underway in Europe, where the EU government is moving closer to demanding harmonization of tax rates and at all states within the open border zone adopt more stringent gun control laws. But for now, we'll stick to examples in the United States. So, I mean, look, Mises has an international reach. A lot of people are concerned about these problems in, uh, in Europe and other parts of the world. Um, and uh, he's going to talk about the United States because, you know, the United States is the focal point. Even in other parts of the world, people look at what the United States is doing um, because of the reach of the United States. So before I get into that, I'm going to take a quick break. I'll talk about the United States on the other side, but I think McMakin has set this up pretty well and what he's going to talk about. So again, I'll talk about this on the other side of the break. I'll see you in just a minute. Let me talk to you for a minute about McClanahan Academy. I know at the beginning of this particular podcast or this video, I talked about McClanahan Academy. But let me go into a little more detail about why I think you should sign up for it and why and why I created it. First, a little bit about me. I have a PhD in American history from the University of South Carolina, and I've taught in the college environment for 20 years. And I've seen college students get worse over time, the curriculum get worse, and students are being indoctrinated more than educated now in our higher education system, whether it's high school or college. So I wanted a counterweight to that. And this is why I created the McClanahan Academy. Now, first, it's always free to enroll at McClanahan Academy. You sign up, it's free. And I give you a free course, 10 Myths of American History, when you do sign up. So it's a great way to get an introduction to what I do. But I've got eight courses for sale there and more forthcoming. All of these courses are designed to give you the non-PC version of American history, to take the red pill, so to speak. And I've got two courses in particular, my U.S. History Survey courses, which are designed for homeschoolers. So if you're a homeschooler and you want a good curriculum and uh, my family has homeschooled all of our children from the beginning, and you want a solid history curriculum. That's why I designed the United States History 18, to 1865 and 1865 to present. You've got enough material. You've got lesson plans. You've got uh, tests. You've got reading material. You've got reading seminars. You've got 36 weeks. If you take them, buy them both, you've got 36 weeks of material, and it can be used as a high school history curriculum. Or if you're just a lifelong learner, you can use it otherwise. But it's a great way to get a real history education devoid of Marxism and progressivism and political correctness. So sign up at mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. Again, always free to enroll, and I'll see you there. All right, we're back talking about open borders between states. Not something that's really discussed. I mentioned how COVID has changed this. We're talking about restricting access to states from other states. A friend of mine said in, in uh, Delaware they should have just blown up all the bridges years ago and kept the people out. Uh, but, I mean, generally what happens is we want these people in, so then you're going to bring in their culture. I mean, this is, this is a bigger issue than just um, uh, viruses, but it's also political culture. You know, states reflect the culture, and I think this is where Mises was talking about, you know, what local people should be able to determine local, I mean, if you have local customs, he's talking about culture. 
Culture matters in a particular area. So then he gives you some examples of where this is going in the United States. First, cross-border travel is an excuse for national gun control. And the gun control debate, it has long been argued that the lack of patrolled borders between states means a greater need for uniform nationwide gun control. In an analysis from National Public Radio, for example, the author concludes that the high homicide rates in Washington, D.C. and Chicago are partly to blame on gun laws in neighboring states. According to political scientist Philip Cook, the stringent gun laws in places like Chicago are only the best, only at best partially effective because the borders are permeable. Were there not free movement from state to state, of course, it would be more difficult to argue that Wisconsin is to blame for Chicago's homicide rate. So he's saying, look, if we didn't have these open borders, you couldn't blame Milwaukee for Chicago. I mean, those dang people in Milwaukee. I mean, come on now. And what have they done anyways? What has Milwaukee done for anything? I mean, Milwaukee, uh, I mean, look, all what they give us, uh, Laverne and Shirley, Milwaukee's best. And now they're bringing guns into Chicago? My gosh. Probably most of you have never even heard of Laverne and Shirley that listen to this show. But uh, maybe uh, uh, the Milwaukee Bucks are messing up professional basketball right now because you're not supposed to have a good basketball team in Milwaukee. And those dang brewers in baseball. I mean, come on. Uh you know, look, as an as an, a lifelong Orioles fan, I hated the Brewers because the Brewers drove a stake in the Orioles back in the 80s several times, and uh, that was terrible. But uh, the argument by gun control advocates in this case follows a now familiar pattern. The presence of a relatively low amount of regulation in one member state, i.e. Indiana, is viewed as a threat to surrounding member states, who then insists that open borders between states mean that low-regulation states must change their policies to match the high-regulation states. This is the uh, another argument, of course, is in welfare. It's the race to the bottom. I remember back in the 1990s, I was having a conversation with someone and and uh, you know arguing against uh, the centralized control of welfare. And of course, uh, you know, if you want to have welfare in your state, well, that's a race to the bottom. If you do that. This state's going to go and they're going to drop welfare and then everybody's going to have to do it because it's the race to the bottom. Or you can look at it as Ryan McMakin is pointing out here. It's the other way. One state raises it and so everyone else has to do it. Uh, I don't think it would make the case there because if if you know if California wants to give you know $1,000 a month to all of its citizens, well, then you're going to have a mass inflow of people coming in now, but McMakin can make the case, well, this should only be for California. You shouldn't have someone come in from Texas to California because they want a check. So if we want to do this for our people here, but keep everybody else out. I mean, this is, this is where you get into these things. The federalization of immigration. Up until the late 19th century, immigration control had been regulated as a state matter. States heavily impacted by immigration, especially New York and Massachusetts, had imposed a variety of laws restricting the movement of immigrant paupers and requiring that bonds be paid on new immigrants to ensure that they did not become a burden on public funds. 
As late as the 1870s, bill aimed at federalizing immigration policy were killed by majorities in Congress. Part of the reason that there was a lack of national consensus was that the views of immigrants, immigrants nationwide were hardly uniform. Some frontier states actively sought immigrants in order to increase the development of farmland and increase state populations. These ongoing regional differences are a reason President Cleveland in 1897 vetoed legislation further restricting immigration because many states and territories of the U.S., especially those bordering Canada, which provided migrant labor to American farmers, benefited from migrants. Cleveland noted that these parts of the country have separate and special interests, in which in many cases make an interchange of labor between the people, their people and their alien neighbors most important. Nevertheless, it was recognized that migrants can move freely from immigrant-friendly states to immigrant-unfriendly states, so anti-immigrant forces had increasingly lobbied for greater federal controls on the external border. Not long after, the U.S. Supreme Court in 1876 ruled that it was necessary to provide a system of laws in this matter applicable to all ports and all vessels in order to settle a long-standing matter of, con- of contest and complaint. By the 20th century, the autonomy once granted to states on the immigration issue was all but forgotten. I mean, look, he's right about this. Immigration was long a state issue. But you go all the way back to the 18th century and you look at, for example, the Alien and Sedition Act. And, uh, you know, one of the complaints was that the central authority was trying to control immigration. They were trying to control naturalization more than anything else. Naturalization is under the purview of the general government when it comes to federal naturalization. But what does that mean for elections? What does that mean for state laws? You know, Jefferson was concerned, Madison was concerned, that making it, uh, that the general government making it uh, to where it took 14 years to become a U.S. citizen was unreasonable. And of course, these people then potentially couldn't vote in a federal election, even though the states controlled who could vote in federal elections. But he's right that immigration was long a state issue and that by the 19th century this began to change. Of course, Cleveland um, was also not in favor of Chinese immigration. He thought that was problematic. Um, But regardless, immigration became nationalized because, again, it's the bad actors, it's the immigrants, it's whatever it is. Well, we don't want these, these people are coming to our state, keep them out. But he's, he's going to make the point, well, if you could just keep them out, well, then that wouldn't be an issue. You could have California be an, a sanctuary state. Everybody from South America, Central America, Europe, Asia, wherever you want to come to, could just come to California and go live there as long as they only get two votes in the Senate. And, of course, uh, they only get so many Electoral College votes you could keep that at bay and and uh, what it would do to the federal election cycle. And they could mess up their own state. Prohibition of the drug war, he continues. Regulating guns and migrants haven't been the only ex- excuses given for expanding federal power in the name of national uniformity. Centralized control is also deemed to be necessary in order to control the transport and manufacture of alcoholic beverages. In the years leading up to the adoption of nationwide prohibition, all but 16 states had adopted their own versions of prohibition. So, I mean, the states had already taken care of this. The states still do. I mean, if you can't buy liquor on a Sunday, that's a state issue. If you have blue laws in South Carolina, that's a state issue. 
For the moralists, however, that wasn't enough. Those states where alcohol remained legal, mostly states with large numbers of Catholics and ethnic Germans, offered a haven to residents of dry states who could easily cross over to the wet states. Even worse, people could illegally import alcohol into dry states from the wet ones with relative ease. By imposing nationwide prohibition on everyone who ever accessed alcohol could be more easily attacked. We see similar issues today as some states have begun to legalize recreational marijuana, much to the dismay of officials in neighboring states. Once again, the answer is alleged to be the federalization of policy and the abolition of local prerogatives. In 2014, two marijuana prohibition, prohibitionist states, Oklahoma and Nebraska, unsuccessfully sued California in response to its legalization of recreational marijuana. The two states were concerned that the lack of a patrol border between Colorado and its neighbors was, I'm sorry, Colorado, yes, Colorado and its neighbors, like California, it was Colorado, between Colorado and its neighbors was an unacceptable threat to the public and prohibitionist states. Thus, the two states positioned the court to declare state law null and void and to rule that federal law reigns supreme in matters of drug prohibition. Fortunately, on this particular issue, the federal courts have not yet decided to declare federal law supreme as they have many times before. But, I mean, if you're putting all your eggs in the basket of the court system, you are bound to be disappointed. This is why the Tenth Amendment Center is so good, because they don't. This is a state issue. The state of Colorado can do whatever it wants in this particular case. But, of course, well, these these uh, stoners can go into Cal- to Colorado. They can bring back their weed. They can put their weed in it, and they can bring it back. Now, if you controlled your borders in Nebraska, you could stop them at the line and say, hey, what you got there? Uh, I mean, you can't come in here. Whatever the case may be, this gets into issues of, you know, privacy and other things, warrants, searches and seizures. I mean, you couldn't just stop someone and say, you know, I want to look in your car. Um, So you'd have to have probable cause and other things. But regardless... Uh, I mean, this this where you get into these to these issues with that, and so. But if it does have an out of state plate, you could just say, "Well, you're not allowed here. We're not allowing people from Colorado into uh, into Nebraska uh, unless they have some type of, you know, green card or something to get in here." I don't know. I mean, this does raise interesting questions about, uh, you know, what what these things would mean for uh, for travel. And now he continues, and he says, well, there are exceptions when erasing borders isn't a problem. Unfortunately, economic integration between member states and the U.S. did not come organically or unilaterally. It was imposed from above, often with the goal that low-regulation states would not provide a haven from high-regulation states. We have seen this in political fights over alcohol, over migrants, and with guns. Experience with these political fights now strongly suggests that lowering of borders does not pose a threat to self-determination, do not enhance the power of the central state only under the following conditions. Only under the following conditions. One, border controls are decreased unilaterally by each member state in an ad hoc and decentralized manner. The central government is too weak or lacks legal authority to impose uniform nationwide laws without widespread consensus. And three, member states bring to the table a significant amount of tolerance for their neighbors and for the fact that people might do things differently in other places. In decades past, for instance, it was more often accepted that some places have stringent gun laws and other places don't. In the minds of many policymakers, this created certain risks and externalities, but these were tolerated in light of the ideological notion that not every aspect of data life ought to be regulated from the center. So number three is very important. We don't have tolerance for people from other states 
doing things differently. By God, California is in my country, and if they do things differently, they need to conform. This gets down, I mean, this this is where, you know, when you talk about the war and secession, these people, they're treason, treason. How dare those people in those states go and leave? Those are my states, and I want to use them. These become my colonies, and I want to go down there and do what I want to with them. Treason! So this is the issue. I mean, these people are, it's, it's a certain type of psychopathy that you think that somebody a thousand miles away should do what you want them to do. It's the Puritan in them. That somewhere somebody is having fun and you got to stop it. Right? You can't be doing that. Somewhere somebody right now is doing something I don't like and therefore I need to stop it. Without, I mean, you can't, you're worrying about everything else instead of what's going on in your own backyard or your own house. I got to worry about something somewhere else. He continues, it is no longer clear, however, that we live in a political environment where this sort of tolerance or decentralization is still valued. It now appears that a lack of functioning borders between member states, instead of prompting unity and cooperation, may actually be promoting conflict and further centralization. For example, were there a meaningful border between California and the rest of the United States, it is unlikely that the rest of the nation would regard foreign migration as the high-stakes political issue it is now. Similarly, if it were not so easy to travel unobstructed from gun-friendly Indiana to gun prohibited Chicago, we wouldn't be hearing about how we need federal action on gun control. The result is something similar to what we see from political centralization in general. By ending legal and physical separations between culturally and legally diverse political jurisdictions, opposing sides end up fighting bitterly over who controls the central government. I mean, this is it. It's nationalism. He's not saying it, but it's nationalism that's the problem. One-size-fits-all solutions don't work because it creates a tremendous amount of conflict. Ironically, the attempt at building unity through erasing borders has increased the stakes of who controls the central government and influences its policymakers. In the long term, this is likely to bring ever greater regional conflict. And I think he's 100% right about this. There's no doubt that uh, nationalization is really the issue nationalism has always been the issue. It's, it's always been the cancer. We get this perspective of American history where it's the states writers, the decentralists. These are the problems. Those treasonous people, those evil nullifiers, those evil 10th Amendment people, they're just creating all kinds of problems. It's actually the nationalists that have been doing this from the beginning. The nationalists are the ones who have been pushing the one-size-fits-all solution for everybody from the beginning. And that's really where the conflict comes. If we didn't have the nationalists following the Philadelphia Convention, look, the Philadelphia Convention did not produce, produce a national constitution. It produced and maintained a federal republic. But the nationalists weren't satisfied. So you get Hamilton, and you get Marshall, and you get Story, and Webster, and Lincoln, and all the nationalists. I mean, James Wilson, we Governor Morris, we can go down the line. We can pick all kinds of nationalists. But they were the ones that were rocking the boat. And the Federalists, the real Federalists, this is why many people bolted the Federalist faction and became Democratic-Republicans. So this is not what we advocated. You nationalists are messing everything up. But of course, that's not the way you're taught it in American history class. It's all these states' writers that are causing all the conflict. And just these pure good nationalists are good for the country. They're just good. These states' writers are the ones that cause all the conflict. Actually, it's the other way around. 
That's the real lesson of American history. And I think McMakin does a good job of pointing that out. All right. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. Think locally, act locally. Let's start having this conversation about where the nationalists should go away. And you do it by listening to this podcast. I'll see you next time.